Welcome to the preaching podcast from the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Therefore, we believe it is our duty to hold fast and to hold forth the truth, which is the Word of God. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you will be encouraged by what you hear today. Stand with me if you would, please, as we read these three verses. It says, and after these things, so he's just finished seeing the sixth seal. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, from the seal, uh, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice, to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Thank you. You may be seated. We said before in the six seals, especially in those first four seals, uh, what you see is God removing some of his uh, His merciful kindness and letting things that are already on earth not be so restrained. So war, already here, but war overcoming so much of the earth and causing so much uh, death and destruction, disease and beast, uh, spreading disease and so forth, Uh, people dying, uh, the famine. All these things we have, but they are in a greater fashion during the first four seals. So you don't really see God intentionally pouring out judgment but removing His hand of protection. And I think even in this, we're going to see a progression of God revealing who He is and reminding His creation of who He is. Uh, Sometimes people will simply respond to the removing of God's hand of protection. Before God ever has to actually strike or smite somebody, He may just say, I'm going to let you go your own way and feel the natural consequences of what you're doing. Uh, And then that gets their attention. Here, I think as you see God and you see the Lord deal with Pharaoh in a similar fashion in Egypt, he starts very mild by turning water into blood. That's disgusting, but they were able to maneuver around that and dig and get some water and it stank and all that. And then, of course, there were frogs and there were lice. And you know as you go along, God begins to demonstrate more and more and more of his power. I see the same kind of... um, acceleration, if you would, of God's judgment in the book of Revelation. So by the time you come to the end, there's a great earthquake like the world has never known. It shakes everything. And yet there's a pause, and the Lord says, before we go any further, we're going to seal these servants of of mine in their foreheads and set them apart from the rest of the earth, very similarly as he did in making a distinction between Israel and Egypt when they were in the land of Egypt. By the way, I think if you study Revelation and you study the ten plagues, you're going to find a great correlation between the plagues poured out on Pharaoh and how God will pour out judgment on the earth. And so what we find those in these first three verses, the earth is mentioned in all three verses. Uh, God mentions the earth. And the first thing it said is that these angels are going to withhold wind from blowing on the earth. And so in that regard, again, as I read this, I'm reminded if God controls the wind that blows across the earth, what we're being told then is God's in charge of the jet stream. Okay? In a world that tells us man is controlling the environment, we need to be reminded, no, the earth is 
the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. It's, it's not man's, it's God's. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God delegated stewardship of the earth to man. He told man to take dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, but he didn't say the earth is yours. The earth, he retained the possession of the earth. And so then we see this. Again, what we're reminded of here is that God controls the wind. God controls the weather. Uh, God controls how much water is on planet earth. Man doesn't control that. I think, it's, I think climate change is one of the most arrogant things mankind has come up with. To say, now look, you and I can affect our atmosphere. We can pollute our atmosphere. I'm all about conserving and taking good care of what we have. And I mean that sincerely. I believe we, are, we should be responsible with uh, our wildlife. We shouldn't waste it. I think we should be responsible with our water resources. We shouldn't defile them. If you've ever been in countries where they are not responsible with their water resources, you'll be glad that our country is. And so I'm, I'm all for that. We should take good care as stewards of God's earth. But we have to be reminded tonight it is His. And so this, this chapter 7, as well as as we go through the book of Revelation, but it almost jumps out in these first three verses that God is saying, I'm about to judge the earth, but I'm going to withhold for just a little bit before, let's read it again. It says, I saw the four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. God gave them power to do what? To hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. It reminds me of what Second Peter 3 tells us, that the earth and the things around us, they're held in store by the Word of God. God. It is the Word of God that holds everything in place. What these, chapter 6 and chapter 7 are revealing to us is, it's by the Word of God. When God says the entire atmosphere, the entire uh, climate, you talk about climate change, the climate on this earth is going to change, and it's not going to be over 1,000 years or 500 years. It's going to be as soon as God says. And it, it's good for us to be reminded that everything we have and enjoy is held in store by God. It's his earth. And so, again, while God gave man stewardship in Genesis 1.26 and in Genesis 2.15 through 17, he retains ownership. Again, we, were, we don't find the word sovereignty in the Bible. And we're very careful how we use it because of its being tied to Calvinism. But God is still sovereign. He is if we might use that term, he still owns everything. He owns the title deed to everything. He allows us to govern on earth and so forth. And so the three times in the Bible, there are three distinct passages that tell us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I think in those three texts, there are some things we can be reminded of and what this statement, the earth is, is the Lord's, what it entails. Why is this stated? What does it mean? Something I think as you read the Bible, you inherently understand. But we're going to go to all three of those texts tonight, read them. Each of them emphasizes something different about the truth of this statement. So go with me now to Psalm 24, if you would. Psalm 24. Psalm 24 parallels Psalm 15. You'll find they read almost identical, not quite, but they both communicate the same concept about who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord. And, of course, the one who fits that description perfectly is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but it's stated, the question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, is stated after revealing just exactly who the Lord is. And there's a reminder. You see, I live in a house that's rented. And so I live in that house like it's mine. Uh, my wife cleans the house. Our children help keep it clean. We keep the lawn tended to and cut and uh, we try to take care of it. If something breaks, it's mine or whatever, we fix it. But the truth of the matter is, if my landlord said tomorrow, you know what, we need to start making plans. I'm going to take possession of my house soon. I would have to do what? I'd have to figure out somewhere else to live because I don't own the home. It's, I don't have a title deed. For those who think they own their home, if the bank said, we're calling you on your loan, you'd figure out who owns the home, right? And if you say, no, no, I own my home. Well, don't, don't pay your taxes. And then who really owns your home? Would, you with me tonight? But I, I understand that's kind of apples to oranges a little bit. My point is this. We can get this from our housing situation. I, as a renter, I really understand this, that while I'm a steward of that house and I enjoy living in it, and I, and I, and I am paying for the privilege to do so and the right to do so, Nonetheless, it's not mine. I don't own it. I don't have a right to sell it. Uh, there are certain rights I don't have legally because it's not mine. We need to be reminded of this about the things of God. There, there, there are some principles in place uh, and then some application to those principles. So in Psalm 24, the emphasis when the Bible says the earth is the Lord's, what it's emphasizing is his position his position of authority. So let's read Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Then it says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? And it's worth reading the rest. We're not going to take the time. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart and hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, so on and so forth. So it's going to remind us of God's character and his holiness. But it, it opens it up with, before it's going to talk to you, who can approach to God? Here's the kind of person you're going to have to be if you're going to approach to God. And of course, Christ fulfills that, and us in Christ uh, are, are fit to approach to the Lord. But we're reminded the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then he says, here's why, verse 2, 4, he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. May I say this, one of the reasons the evolutionists want to change the history of the origin of man is to say God doesn't own the earth, we do. And if God doesn't own the earth and we do, then who are the fittest owners of the earth? Survival of the what? And there are those that say we are more fit to own the earth and manage it than you are because we're smarter than you. We have more funds than you do, and so you're not welcome to as much uh, real estate as we are. So if you can get God out of the picture, that'd be like me saying, you know, at my house uh, where we live, um, you know what, let's, let's pretend that the owner doesn't exist, and then I can sell off that acreage, I can do with it what I want to, and I have to ask him about a thing. That changes my position now, doesn't it? Puts me in a whole different position. And so it's very important to understand that Psalm 24 is setting forward. No, the earth is the Lord's because he made it. His position of ownership and authority, and we're going to see two things here in his position. He is the originator of the earth. We know that. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. God is the one that set this thing up. 
God is the one that created it. God is the one that designed it. The Bible talks about the wisdom with which God designed the earth in Proverbs chapter 8. And so because he's the creator, by default, he's the owner. The earth is the Lord's just like our children belong to my wife and I. We are their parents. We are the ones who gendered them into this life. Therefore, they by default belong to us when they're born. They don't, how many of us understand? You don't have to write that into a law. That's God's divine design that children belong to their parents. You know why the earth belongs to God? Because he made it. <laughs> All things were made by him. and Without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So Psalm 24 deals with the fact the earth is the Lord's because he is the originator or the creator of the earth. But notice what else it says. The earth is the Lord's because he has ownership. As the originator, then he's, he is the title deed holder or the owner, look what it says that he owns. The earth is the Lord's, that's a possessive term, and the fullness thereof. I think it's very interesting how this is stated and, and worded out. Without stopping to meditate on it, we might miss some of these things. Why not just say the earth is the Lord's and be done? Because God knows man and he knows how he thinks. Okay, the, the earth is the Lord's. Well, how much of it is the Lord's? All of it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Well, I'm glad he didn't say the people on the earth are the Lord's, just the earth. Now, now he covered that too. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world. Now, why does he throw that in there? You know, when God uses the term the world, generally what that's dealing with is now we're not only dealing with what, but when, time. The world deals with ages of time. Uh, I believe it is Ephesians talks about unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without End. And so Jesus said, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. The world has to do with the span of time that really man is on earth and on this sin-cursed earth. God gave man stewardship of the earth before the sin, but the world has to do with the duration of time that's measured from really the fall of man till there's a new heaven and a new earth. You know what God is saying? The fall of man did not negate my ownership of the earth. I still own it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, meaning God not only owned the original creation before its fall, he owns everything perpetually thereafter. He owned the first fruit trees and he owned the trees that came out of the seed that was born off of those fruit trees and he owns the trees that were born off of those. He owns the original creation and he owns everything since then that has sprung forth from that creation, including the inhabitants of the earth. He owned Adam and Eve. He owned Cain. He owned Abel. Somebody say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't the child of God distinctly God's possession? Yes, the Bible talks about our bodies being his purchased possession. But how many just understand this? In general, how many, did God only create saved people or did he create everybody? So in essence, when a lost person is lost, Satan stole that person. Remember, he is, a, he is a thief and a liar because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. We have to be reminded, this earth belongs to God. It's his. Every, you know what? If we're here tonight, we are a landowner. If you're here tonight and you own any piece of anything that is earthly, we got to remember who the real owner is. This is reminding us. You hear people that teach on finances. You need to know that God is the owner. You're just the steward. That's absolutely true, including our bodies. 
the original owner and the final owner is God. And so he, he owns each one of us by the fact that he created us. And so Psalm 24 deals with his position when it tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so then, uh, now let's go to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. Here we're going to be reminded and told that the earth is the Lord's. This is right in the middle of the plagues being poured out on Pharaoh. And so this is specifically the plague of hail that God had sent to judge Pharaoh. Now you remember that Pharaoh worshipped the creatures and the Egyptians worshipped the creature more than the creator. My understanding is they had a God for every, they had a river God. God judged the Nile River. They had a God that was represented by a frog. God judged frogs. They were, everything they worshipped, God said, here, I'm going I'm to give you what you worship." And he showed that, no, no, I'm in control of the river. I'm in control of the frogs. I'm in control of the dust and the lice. I'm in control of your health. I'm in control. I know people tonight, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how many people in this part of the world who are godless as the day is long and they worship their bodies and the health of their flesh. Now, I'm not against health. I think we ought to take care of our bodies, but I also... It, it pains me to see someone go out and live in gross immorality and then pay such close attention to eating organic. I'm like, hey, how about get right with God? Godliness is profitable in all things. I'm not against eating organic, but you're shooting yourself in the foot if you're going to live ungodly while trying to tend to your diet. That's, that's counterproductive, amen? I don't know how I got off on that. Other than the fact that there are people that get their, in Egypt, you had people, I, I assume, in love with their bodies and their health. And God struck bodies with boils. God reminded them, I'm in control of everything. And I'm in charge of everything. And so uh, here, the emphasis on the earth being the Lord's is an emphasis not only his position, but on his power over his creation his position of ownership as creator, but here his power over his creation. By the way, that's what the Lord Jesus' ministry demonstrated over and over is that he is God because he has power over creation. The Lord Jesus had power over a fish in the sea. He told Peter, go cast a line. Guess what? There was a fish. Simon, Peter, and John, throw a net. There were fish. He said, peace be still, and the wind stopped. Amen. He told someone's body, a withered hand, to be healed, and it was straightened up. He has power over creation, and so then that's what's demonstrated here in Exodus chapter 9, verse 29. Let's, let's actually go back. No, let's, we'll begin. Verse 29. And Moses said unto him, speaking to Pharaoh, As soon as I am gone out of this city, this city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be uh, any more hail, that thou mayest know how that the earth is the Lord's, but as for thee and thy servants, I know that ye will not yet fear the Lord. And the flax and the barley was smitten, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was bold. But the wheat and the rye were not smitten, for they were not grown up. And Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread abroad his hands unto the Lord. And the thunders and hail ceased, and the rain was not poured upon the earth. And the Bible says, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so then in Exodus 9.29, Moses said, As soon as I'm going out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail. Why? That thou mayest know how that the earth is the Lord's. He said, I'm going to spread my hands and speak to God, and you're going to see that the Lord controls the weather. 
Now, as a lot of people have tried this before, you have to be authorized by God to go out there and tell the weather anything because you and I don't control it. And again, I know that our so-called scientists up today think we control the weather. I understand you can affect weather patterns in small pockets and areas, but you know what? I think on a regular basis. How many have seen the weather patterns change? It's about the time that our scientists begin to say, now this is how you can recognize uh, climate change. We, we call it climate change now because we can't call it global warming anymore, but here's how you can recognize it. How many of us, rem- I don't remember, but I've read about it in the 70s, everything was going to freeze up, right? Is that correct? Boy, it did too, didn't it? And now all of a sudden, no, oh, no, the, the ice caps are melting. We're all going to be flooded away. We're all going to die. You know what? God says, I'm in control of the weather. Don't, don't we, in the midst of a crazy world that denies what God says, don't we need to be reminded that the earth is the Lord's? Pharaoh, you know what Pharaoh had begun to believe? And I don't know if he thought somehow he could control the weather, but it, it was important to Moses to say, I'm going to go talk to the Lord so that you can know he's the one in control. Not me, Moses, not you, Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh had to be put in his place. He, th- he thought he had power that he did not have, and the Lord was having to reveal to him, no, you, you are a man, you are my creation. I make the thunder and the hail and the rain come, and I make it stop. And that's the truth. And so his power over his creation, he has power to care for his creation. The Bible says he makes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's God. That's his care for his creation. But he also has power to condemn. When we read Revelation 7, 1, you know what God's saying? I'm going, I'm going to hurt the earth. You know why? Because it's mine. And I can do with mine as I please. And what I know is right. I believe this. When man begins to worship the earth so much as his own possession, God has to remind him, it's not yours, it's mine. And by the time you get to Revelation, man is so hardened against God that God has to deal with him so fiercely and he'll hurt the earth and he'll hurt the sea because it's his earth and it's his sea. He created it. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning. God is the one who spoke this earth into existence and he's the one that's going to speak it into non-existence. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. It's, it's his. It is in his power to care for his earth. It's in his power to condemn it to control it, that's all in his, in his hands. Psalm 107, 25 says, For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. Matthew, Mark 4, 37. Mark 4, 37. And, therefore, and there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so it was now full. And that's the same text where it goes on to say that even the winds and the waves of the seas obey him. Talking about Jesus Christ. A fulfillment of Psalm 107, 25, which we'll see here in a couple of weeks, Sunday morning. And so it's in God's power to care for his earth, to condemn if, if and when it's needful, and to control and to preserve and anything else he wishes to do with his earth. The earth is the Lord's. And so that speaks of his power. Uh, the Lord turned on the hail and destroyed Pharaoh's crops, and he s- turned it off before everything was destroyed. Uh, that's the Lord's, that's his power over his creation, over his earth. Number three, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the only New Testament reference we have to this. Of course, it's referring back to this statement in the Old Testament. But it's very interesting because the context of 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, dealing with whether or not a believer in Christ should eat meat. And he's going to reference eating meat because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
or not eating meat because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So as Christians, there is a direct and specific application to us in remembering the earth belongs to God and the fullness thereof. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that would be the markets, the back alleys and streets, whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat asking no question for conscience sake. So let's just give the context. They would take meat that had been offered to idols. Maybe the merchant would go buy it at a discount after it had been offered. And then he would go sell it in his shop. <laughs> and some were concerned. We know we shouldn't eat meat offered to idols. And they got so focused on the commandment that they missed the reason for it. The idea was, what if it, what they're doing is playing the hypothetical. What if it was offered to an idol? Let, let, me, let me roll this forward into to our day and time. How many of you have used cash to buy something in the last 30 days? Like dollar bills, $5 bill, you didn't buy hardly anything with a dollar bill, but maybe a 5 or a $10 bill, you went out and bought a couple of eggs. Um, <laughs> you'll get that in a second. And so you used cash. Well, what if that cash was used to purchase drugs at some point or time? What if that's drug money? Oh, we don't want to be involved in that kind of lifestyle, dude. What if that, what if that money uh, was, was used to purchase an abortion? Is it possible? Well, it's very possible. Well, you know what? You know, you know who owns the trees that made the paper to make the money? God does. And ultimately, it's his. And that's the first application here. There was meat sold in the shambles, and there will be those that say, it's possible that meat came from an idol's temple. That's true, but you don't know that. You don't know that. What you do know is who owns the cow that it came from. That's what he's going to say. Every good gift, James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above uh, with, uh, and cometh down from above from, uh, 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 from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We have to remember the good things that sustain our life. They came from God. They're a gift from God uh, to sustain us. First, uh, First Timothy chapter 6 tells us that God giveth us richly all things to enjoy. In a world of sin, you can live your entire life worrying about whether or not something that's used for your sustenance was somehow connected with evil. Honestly, is this not true? What, what if my shoes were made by slaves in a foreign country? Well, that's possible. Now, if someone tells me these were made by little girls and boys who've been kidnapped and are beat half to death, and that's how you can get these discounted shoes. You know what I'm going to say? I don't want them. I don't need that kind of discount. But if I don't know that, the leather that is on my shoes came from a cow that God owns. So enjoy what God gives and, and receive the gifts of God with rejoicing. So he goes on to say... Uh, verse uh, 25, whatsoever sold the shambles, that eat asking no question for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's. It doesn't belong to the idol and it doesn't belong to idolaters. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Look at verse 27. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. So don't sit there and say, was this offered to an idol? Don't, don't do that. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake 
that showed it for the con and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience I say not thine own, but of the other, for why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? You know what he's saying here? They are insinuating that there is no God when they worship an idol. They are insinuating that we worship the creature rather than the creator. And not only insinuating that, they're stating it. That's what idolatry says, is we don't accept the living God. We have a God of our own making. So when they offer you something that was offered to that idol, well, the idol's a dumb idol. It doesn't own anything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but refuse it so they understand the earth doesn't belong to idols. It belongs to him, and I'm not going to partake from anything that brings him off his throne. I'm not going to be party to that. And so the idea here would be that because, okay, God's position of creation of, as creator and owner of the earth, his power over his creation reminds us that he is the possessor of his creation, and therefore we are to receive good at his hand with gratitude and never let anything rob him of glory when it's in our power to do so. So when we're offered something that diminishes who the Lord is, when we're offered something, somebody put it this way, if you and I, whether it's meat or it's some ideology, if we have to partake of something that affirms evolution, we're wrong. We don't have to do that. You know why? That because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is simple, but it, it is very applicable to us. And so as we look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, we are reminded that God is in control of the winds of the heaven. He is in control of weather patterns on earth. May I say this? I, I believe some of our crazy weather patterns, and we have had some crazy weather patterns, is God reminding us the earth is mine. I mean, can you imagine being a weatherman over the last five years? It's been, it's been some crazy... I mean, Texas had snow a couple weeks ago. It's deep south. Cold down there. What's up with that? It's God saying, I'm in control. I'm in control. And, and man's scrambling to try to come up with some other answer that you and I need to be reminded as Christians tonight, every decision we make on what we partake or what we refuse needs to point back to the fact he is still who he said he is. He's the creator. He is the controller of everything on earth. And we need not partake of anything that diminishes from that, but we need to gladly partake of the gifts he's given us that don't diminish from that. You know one of the ways we glorify God? Enjoying the things he gave us from his earth. Amen. You know what? When I sit down to a meal with elk on my plate, I am a happy man. I'm enjoying that because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness is thereof, and he allows us to partake of it and to enjoy it. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. And so tonight, may we be reminded, may we be reminded, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. One quick note as we close. I noticed in Revelation 7 that what we're, two quick notes. He talks about the angel standing on the four corners of the earth. I don't know if anybody is aware of the resurgence of flat earth ideology, and I'm not going to wade into all that tonight, but this is one of the texts they like to quote. quote well, the earth has four corners, and it's on pillars. Well, number one, I don't know if those folks ever heard of figurative speech, but how many of us can see the context of Revelation 7 is the four corners of the four directions in earth, north, south, east, and west. That's very clearly what's being discussed here, not the shape of the earth, okay? And so that's number one. The four corners of the earth are not referring to a, a, a square or rectangular earth or some kind of odd shape. And by the way, 
there are people that are adamant about this. They believe if you don't believe in a flat earth, you're not saved. And I'm not kidding. They believe if you don't believe in a flat earth, you're not saved. So you're now saved by the gospel of the flat earth, not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of us know that's wrong? You want to believe in a flat earth? Knock yourself out. I really don't care. I know who owns it, whether it's flat or round. I really don't care. Now, I think there's a lot of proof to tell you it's round. But anyway, it doesn't matter. That's not what Revelation 7 is teaching. I just want to throw that out there. And number two, the first mention of wind on earth, any, any Bible students tonight, I wouldn't have known this until I looked it up. So if you don't, there's no shame if none of us knew this, but what's the first mention of wind in the Bible? Anybody know? It is in Genesis. I just think it's intriguing what the first mention is. What's that? No. The Bible talked about the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters, but the wind was not mentioned. So we're talking about the very word wind. What's that? No, it wasn't Pharaoh's dream, but sooner than that. It's after the flood and God was drying the earth. He sent wind to dry the earth, meaning he's resurrecting life. Now in Revelation 7, you know what he's doing? Stopping the wind to kill it. Huh? You think about if the wind didn't blow, what effect it would have on our earth. The wind is purifying, it's purging, it, it is, and wind is it's a type of the Holy Spirit of God, though I think obviously speaking literally in Revelation 7. I just thought it was very interesting. The very first mention of wind is God sending it to resurrect new life on earth. But here in the end in Revelation 7, it's like we're walking our way right back and now we're coming into the judgment again. And the very, the very wind he sent after the flood, he's, I'm going to stop it. And we're going to have the opposite effect. There's going to be death and destruction. Just tells us, once again, who's in control. That ought to be a comforting thing to us tonight. God is in control. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll be dismissed.